Our second scripture passage is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you while your pastor is suffering for Jesus in Denver, Colorado. I hear it's pretty good out there. As you can tell by my accent, as Corky said, I'm not from these parts of the world. I grew up in London, and I didn't grow up in the church. I was probably what you would call a disinterested agnostic. I just didn't think that the claims of the church or Christianity were worth even exploring. But even as somebody who had no interest in the church, I would have been aware of one of these. Can we just throw up that slide of the crosses? There we go. So I would have been aware of the cross. And I would have been aware of the cross because of important philosophers like um, Bono, lead singer of U2. And uh, you know, he, I would have seen him wearing a cross, and I would have seen the cross as you know, that kind of fashion item. Lots of people wore crosses or had crosses tattooed on their arms. And I think if you'd asked me, I would have said, oh, it's quite cool. I quite like the cross. Not really thinking or understanding what it means. Because if you look at those images just for a moment, just gaze on them, and then think about the deep irony of what is being shown. Because the cross was an extremely cruel, deliberately cruel form of execution. It was invented by the Romans, and the Romans who were not known for their kindness. So if you were the Emperor Nero, and you didn't like one of your senators, you simply wrote him a little note and said, Dear Senator, please would you kill yourself? And the senator would then have to do that. That would solve one or two political problems around here, wouldn't it? 
So not a people known for their extraordinary kindness. And yet, even for the Romans, eventually they... Can we take that down, please? Thank you. Could we t uh, could the, even for the Romans, even for the Romans, in the end, they banned the cross as a form of execution as simply being too barbaric, too cruel. But if you'd asked me, what does the cross symbolize in my pre-Christian life, I might have had a go at saying, well, I think it's something to do with some kind of universal value. Perhaps it has to do with sort of humanity. Perhaps it's about something to do with love. And I want to just think with you this morning about the cross. And we are, as it were, this morning entering into something of a holy mystery. It's a mystery that is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Because for most great leaders that humanity looks to and aspires to and says this is a model, or he or she is a model on whom we can base our life, we look not at their death, but we look at their life. So we wouldn't think about Martin Luther King's death other than as a tragedy, an unforeseen tragedy and something that put to an end a very good and useful life. And yet, in the Christian faith, it is the death of Christ that occupies the imagination of the church. And in fact, about one-third of the Gospels, the biography of Jesus, the biographies of Jesus' life, the four biographies, one-third of them are concerned with the events that surrounded Jesus' death. Every week here at Christ Church Vienna, you celebrate and remember Jesus' death. It's the central worship service. And many of you, as Christians, probably have somewhere in your possession a cross. I mean, just as a straw poll, how many of you actually have some kind of cross? So we're approaching something of a mystery. And I want to think with you this morning about why the cross and Jesus' death is so central to the Christian faith. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of circle around the cross. Look at the cross not simply as an abstract idea, something that we've got to kind of conceptually get hold of, but as a narrative. As a story, if you will, that is being written into the church, into the world, and into your and my life. So I'm going to look at three things, because every good story has an a beginning. So I'm going to look at the cross as a beginning of a story. It's a bit like a birth. It's something that was started, has been recreated, if you will, through the cross. So we're going to look at it as a beginning. But then secondly, like all stories, there's a middle. So we're going to look at it as a beginning and then as a middle, as a path, if you will, of life. And then thirdly and finally, every story has to have an end. So we're going to look at the cross this morning as a beginning and a middle, and an end. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father God, this morning, as we consider something that is profoundly mysterious, that is deeply, or should be, deeply troubling and reassuring at the same time, as we gaze upon the cross, 
and remember and bring to mind and wonder what it means for us, for your church, for us as individuals. Would you speak to our hearts? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So because I'm going to approach the cross as something of a narrative, I want to start by telling you a story. So as I said, I grew up outside of the church, and at one point in my young adult life, I found myself in um, a, a class, an actor's class. And I was part of this little actor's troupe in London that did these kind of improv. You know what I mean by improv? So I did improv classes um, in London with actually a bunch of models, people who, you know, the models, uh, fashion models. And these fashion models, like many fashion models, wanted to be an actor, and there was I. And I wanted to be an actor too, so I went and did this improv class. We're all allowed a past, okay? <laughs> and at this improv class, there was a man called um, Dino that I met. So I met this young man called Dino. And Dino, I was immediately struck by him as a person because there was something very tough and hard about this young man. And Dino would, in the improv classes, which were always about pushing the boundaries, to seeing how far you could go, how deep you could go, how angry you could get, how far you could go into the sort of reaches of uh, human emotion, Dino went further than anybody else. And he was always the one who, as it were, sort of shook things up a little bit. 16 years later, I'd lost contact with Dino. In those 16 years, I had become a Christian. I was now in a large central church in London. And uh, at this church, we regularly did something called the Alpha Course. I don't know if you've heard of the Alpha Course, but this is really an evangelistic course that teaches people the fundamentals of Christ, which is really what we're doing in this series, is looking at the fundamental beliefs of Christianity. And so I was in this church, it met in the evenings, and one day, in through the door, walked Dino. And it was an extraordinary moment, because I looked at Dino, and I thought, you are the last person on earth that I would ever expect to see in a church. And at that moment, he looked at me, and I knew exactly what he was thinking. <laughs> and as Dino entered into the life of the church, I found out the reality of his story. Because I hadn't known Dino that well, and I'd certainly never bothered to really ask him about himself. And what I found out over time was Dino's uh, story was a very difficult one. He'd grown up in New Zealand. He'd been abused as a teenager, sexually. Because of that abuse, probably, or probably, uh, he had turned to drugs. He got himself so into the drug world that he got himself deeply in trouble with those who were selling him the drugs. So far, so much so, that in the end, his parents said, you've got to leave the country. You're in so much trouble, you've got to leave the country. And they put him on a plane to fly to London, where he had an uncle or a relative. That uncle and relative never turned up at the airport. So Dino was left alone in England, in London, on his own, looking out for himself. You can imagine how the rest of the story goes. But as Dino entered into the life of the church, as we watched him growing in the faith, we saw, as it were, a parable a narrative, a story of what Christianity is like. Dino was, when he came into the church, deeply in debt. 
to the tune of about £100,000, $150,000. But as he entered into the community, it just so happened that in this church was a man who was one of the heads of Deutsche Bank. And this man said, who got to know Dino and got to know a little bit about his story and felt compassionate towards him, said, you know, I, I, Dino, I can help you because I know how finance works and I know how financial people think. So we're gonna go to the people you owe this money, your bank, and we're gonna make a deal with them. Dino was like, okay. So this man took Dino with him to the bank and he said, you know, look, there are two options for you. One, you can let Dino go bankrupt, you won't get a penny. Or two, we can do a deal now and we'll figure out what he can pay and you'll cancel the rest of the debt. And that's exactly what happened. So Dino went from this enormous debt to having something that he could manage and pay off. You can imagine the effect that that would have on somebody just entering into the Christian faith. Dino, at the time that he came into the church, was in this hopelessly difficult relationship with a girl. It was going nowhere. I got to know her. She was a lovely girl, but it was never going to go anywhere. But they were so addicted to each other, they couldn't break apart. Until eventually, eventually, Dino let go and said, this is going nowhere. I need to let it die. Now he's married with a kid. Dino said and made a vow when he left New Zealand. He said, I'm never, ever, ever going to go back there. All my darkest fears, all the worst things that ever happened to me happened in New Zealand. I'm never, ever going back to New Zealand. Dino became an Anglican priest. He's now in New Zealand. Ministering, at last I heard, to Maori people in the north of the island. So why do I tell you that story? Because the cross is not an abstract idea that we somehow lay hold of once in our lives and then forget about, really, for the rest of our Christian lives until perhaps we die. The cross is a dynamic thing in Christianity. The beginning of Dino's story was to accept the gift of what Jesus did on the cross. You cannot live in this country for very long without knowing that Jesus died for our sins. True or not? It's everywhere. If you didn't hear it in church, you will have seen it written on a billboard somewhere. Right? Jesus died for our sins. We say it so often, it becomes almost meaningless. And last week, Johnny did a great talk, I really enjoyed listening to his talk last week, of explaining why, or what the problem uh, uh, that was, is solved if you were on the cross is. And we, you read from Romans 1. Professing to be wise, they, that's us, men, became fools. So we thought we were wise, but we're not. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. We exchanged God and started to worship ourselves, essentially. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts, their epi desires, the desires that control our hearts, to, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And we read from the prophet Isaiah that this problem of sin, a three-letter word with I in the middle, S-I-N, this problem of sin is not something that you and I can deal with. And Isaiah, in this extraordinary passage, it's well, well worth having a look at it again, Isaiah 53, and how Isaiah somehow prophetically saw what the, the, the answer, the solution, if you will, to the problem of sin is. And we read... 
that he was pierced for our transgressions. And Christians understand that he to be Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep. That's not a compliment. Sheep are stupid. Just saying it. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We've given up worshiping God and started to worship ourselves. And the Lord, the Lord God, has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And we understand that something like the great exchange. So I've, I've heard it explained like this. We were created like this, like an open hand, to have direct relationship with God. We're supposed to be those who can walk with God. But the problem is, Sin, represented by your church bulletin. There's nothing wrong with the church bulletin. Sin has separated us from God. And we can't break through that barrier. Our prayers hit the ceiling. We just can't make it through. But Jesus, the one who has perfect relationship with God, righteousness. It's a religious word. It just simply means right relationship. On him, our sin has been laid so that we might again enjoy perfect relationship with Jesus and with God. These are our sins that have been laid on Jesus so that we, once again, might enjoy an open relationship with God. It's called in theology, the self-substitution of God. But it doesn't answer the question, well, okay, I get it. I get the theory. I get the cross as an idea. But why does it have to be so brutal? Even if sin is as bad as you say, which is difficult to believe on a glorious sunny morning here in Vienna. It's so beautiful, the world looks great. Your family are great, your friends are great. But even if sin, is as bad as, you're, say, as we, is, uh, you're saying, why does somebody, why did God's own son have to die so brutally on the cross? Couldn't God just forgive us? Couldn't he just forgive us? And the answer is, and you may not have heard this in church before, but forgiveness is not free. Forgiveness is not free. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, gives a little example, which is a trivial example, but it makes the point. Come with me in your imaginations. Imagine that I lend you my car. It's a very nice car. It's a brand new Volvo, okay? Pretty cool car. And you'd get into the car, and you're backing out of the driveway, and you back that car straight into my gate, and you knock down part of the wall, and you put a big dent in my brand new Volvo. Now, there are two options. One, I make you pay for my brand new Volvo and the gate and the wall. Or secondly, I forgive you. Now, if I forgive you, who pays the cost? I do, right? I pay the cost. 
And it wouldn't matter even if we said, well, we'll share the costs. At some point, somebody has to pay the price. For Dino, forgiveness was not an abstract idea. He had the real example of forgiveness of debt. Who paid the cost of that forgiveness? The bank. The bank paid the cost. God's forgiveness is free to you. It is a free act, if you will, and it can be freely received by you, but who pays the cost? God. Sometimes people say, you Christians, you're kind of barbaric, because what kind of God would do that kind of thing to his own son? And they're totally missing the point. The barbarity of what happens on the cross is points to us and the reality of the cost of sin. That's why it's so terrible. It's not because God does terrible things, it's because the problem is extremely costly. The price Jesus paid is a high one, and that should tell us about the reality and the damage of sin. And that's something that we saw in Dino's life. So that's great. Okay, I've got the theory. You've probably heard that before. If you've been around a church, if you've been a Christian for a while, you'll know that at least in part. But then the question is, so what? If Dino, my friend, has his debts canceled, ruled out, does it really matter? Because you know what human beings are like, don't you? And you know that when somebody's debts are just paid off, it doesn't stop them behaving like debt people. And very often, people who have their debts paid off, what do they do? They go off and run up a whole new bunch of debts. So why should it matter? If there was no actual transformation in Dino, he would just end up back where he was. But the cross is not just an extraordinary beginning where we can accept this cancellation of debt. It is also the path and the way that we are then set on. And we read from Paul in 2 Corinthians this. We have this treasure in jars of clay, that's us. We are the jars of clay to show the passing power Surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way. Things are going wrong, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because we always carry in the body, us, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death. Not one time, not just when you came to Christ, not just when you made a profession of faith. You're always being given over to this process of dying. For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal bodies. What's Paul saying? Somehow, Paul says, by the power of God, through his spirit, the cross is being written into our hearts over our lifetime. We're in a constant process of being given over to death so that the old man, the old woman, is being crucified and that we get transformed into the image of Christ. Paul didn't think you could do that by yourself. 
You need the power of God to do that. That's why church is not about making a profession of faith and then coming and trying really hard to be good. You can't do it. You need to be transformed. If you think I'm proposing something new, the church has always understood this. It talks about the justification, that's what happens, that great transfer, and then the sanctification, where gradually the life of Christ is worked into us. C.S. Lewis, who is a British author, wrote about this in uh, a book he called The Great Divorce. And he wrote about this process of gradual transformation where the old man, the old us, slowly dies. Not because we decide, but that's what God does in us. And he writes a a story as a narrator. And so this is a story written, seen through the eyes of a narrator. And in this story, the narrator goes to a little English, gray, dull town. If you ever want to get an image of what hell is really like, Just go and find yourself a little English, gray, dismal, rainy town. That's not true. And the narrator finds himself in this town, and then he finds himself on a bus. And this bus, he discovers, is going up to heaven with a number of people on it. These people are kind of ghostly. They're kind of not very real. So the narrator watches as the bus approaches heaven, which is a kind of, if you will, parable for what our lives are supposed to be like, that it's a progressive thing. It's not a one-time decision and then hang on till the end. But there is a gradual process of transformation that is supposed to happen in our lives. And he watches as the bus approaches heaven, a lot of the the ghostly people say, no, 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 thank you. We'll go back to the gray, rainy little town. But some want to go on. And as they go on, he sees this one particular man. And this is what C.S. Lewis wrote. I saw, as a story, I saw coming towards us a man who carried something on his shoulder. So this is one of the people on the bus. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard on his shoulder. It was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in the man's ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, shut up. The lizard wagged its tail and continued to whisper him. The man ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westwards, away from the mountains. The mountains represent heaven. So this man is turning away from heaven. Off so soon, said a voice. And this voice is an angel. Yes, I'm off, said the man. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. His stuff won't do here. I realize that. But he won't stop. I'll just have to go home. Would you like to make him quiet, said the spirit, the angel. Of course I would, said the man. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, you didn't say anything about killing, I hardly meant to bother you with anything as drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? And then there's this little dialogue where the man and the angel wrestle. Shall I kill it? Do you want me to kill these things, to put them to death in you? And eventually the man gives in. You're right, it would be better to to be dead than to live with this little creature. Then may I? 
Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the man, but he ended whimpering. God, help me. God, help me. And then the angel kills the lizard, but the result is a total surprise. And this is the narrator. At first, he says, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. But as the lizard grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. And in that story, C.S. Lewis is setting out the path of transformation in a Christian's life. That there will be lots of little and sometimes big deaths. Things that God has to put to death in us so that the life that he has for us can emerge. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's not a one-time deal. And for Dino, my friend, there were many little deaths and many little transformations after he accepted the big one. Letting go of relationships, letting go of old ways of life, which when you're in it, feel like dying. I can't stop doing this. I can't end this relationship with so-and-so. I can't let go of my job. I can't do this. I can't do that. But when the power of God is working in you, sometimes you have to do it in order for that thing that you're holding on to that stops you living, that has to die so that Jesus can bring you the life that he has. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You're just going to have to do a little dying along the way. So the cross is the beginning. It's the gift. But it's also the path. It's the way that you're supposed to go, the way you're supposed to walk. And finally... And lastly, it's also the end that we're walking towards. It's the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end of the story. Because the question is, it's okay. If we're being transformed, the question is, what are we being transformed into? How do we know what it looks like? This is what Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians. I pray, Paul prays for us as I pray for you this morning that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Can we put that slide up? You see, this is what love looks like. And it's not what you expect, is it? See, my intuitions, even as a non-Christian, that this cross, this symbol that turns up on dresses and on fashion items, somehow has to do with humanity and love. We're actually right. That the cross is about love. It doesn't make sense except that it does. You see, it doesn't get much worse than the cross. This is what Cicero, 
who was a Roman, how he described the crucifixion. The most cruel and hideous of tortures. Jesus would have been stripped and tied to a whooping post. He was flogged with four or five thongs of leather, interwoven with sharp, jagged bone and lead. The sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews and bowels of the victims were open to exposure. When they reached the site of the crucifixion, he was again stripped naked. He was laid on the cross. Six-inch nails were driven into his forearms, just above the wrists. His knees would have been twisted sideways so the ankles could be nailed between the tibia and the Achilles tendon. And there he was left to hang in intense heat and unbearable thirst, exposed to the ridicule of the crowd. It was the height of pain and depth of shame. What can that possibly have to do with love? The answer is, this is how far God's love is willing to reach. See, the cross is not just a three-dimensional thing. It reaches up to the heavens. It also reaches down to the depths of hell. It reaches into every area of our lives horizontally, and it reaches back and forward, back into our past and forward into the future. The cross, when we gaze on it and when we think about it, demonstrates to us the nature of God's love. Our love is very different. We love what we want, and we love what will love us back. Isn't that true? We love what we want to have, and we love those who will love us back. But God's love is very different. God loves in one direction. He pours out his love on the loveless who cannot give him anything back. It is love to the loveless shown that they may lovely be. And it is love that reaches into the deepest, deepest, most shameful parts of our lives. There is nowhere that God's love cannot reach. There is no one far enough away There is nothing in our lives that cannot be reached by love, by God's love. God's love does not stand at a height, at a distance, and wait for us to approach him. He comes to us wherever we are, to our darkest and most secret places. That's why love looks like that. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's the kind of love that God is transforming us into. You see, Dino, when he became an Anglican priest, which might sound like hell to some of you, (laughs) it was part of God's love for him so that he could begin to exercise this same sacrificial, self-giving love. Sure, imperfect. I'm not saying Dino became perfect when he became an Anglican priest. Sure, imperfect, but he began to live out. It was God's call on his life to begin to live out this same sacrificial love that took Dino back to the very darkest places in his life so that he could show the same kind of love to other unlovely people. That's the gospel. And you may say, thank God for Dino, thank God for Johnny and the priests who do this thing, but that's what you're called to as well. See, there's not one person in this room this morning who is not called to be a priest. No, you don't have to put on a dog collar. That's what we call those in England, by the way. You don't have to put on one of these. But you are called to be being transformed. You had a beginning. There was a moment when you accepted forgiveness. 
then you are now, whether you know it or not, through the power of God, working that forgiveness and that Christ-like death that leads to life into your lives, day by day, through all the trials, the circumstances, the good and the bad of your life. That's what's happening, the middle, the journey. And the end is that you would know the love of God, the love that pours itself out for the sake of the other, this total, radical, self-giving love of God. That's what you're headed towards. And it's the kind of love that ultimately leads to the resurrection. And I'm not gonna get ahead of myself because I think you're gonna be looking at the resurrection in the series as you come go forward. But that is what the cross is all about. Can we take that image down? And for some of you, you might not have ever really heard or thought about what the cross means. You might not really have ever fully accepted God's forgiveness. You might not have fully understood that wherever you are in your life, young, old, in between, that this cruciform love is being worked into your life in the good things and in the bad things, when it gets hard, when it's wonderful, so that ultimately you would know the fullness of God's love that looks like the cross. Because God's love is not like our love. It doesn't demand a return. It is total self-giving, radically poured out love. So I wanna finish this morning by just doing a simple little prayer. And we can all join this just quietly in the, in the quiet of your heart. You just echo these words in your heart. You can do this either just as a sort of reaffirmation. But if there's anybody here this morning who's never really understood why the Christians carry these strange little crosses and why they think about Jesus' death, and you've never really understood it, but you've understood it, something about, these, uh, something about what I've been saying this morning has just touched your heart and you know that God is speaking to you then let me pray this prayer and we can join together quietly um, with these words. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for dying for me on the cross. Help me to understand the great gift your life and death gives me. I'm truly sorry for the things in my life that have been wrong. I turn away from everything that I know is wrong and I receive the gift of your forgiveness. I put my trust in what you did on the cross for me and I ask you please to come and fill me with your Holy Spirit to give me the strength to lead this cruciform kind of life that deep down I know I'm longing to leave because it leads to life. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.